want to mention the loss of Dick Goddard yesterday. I know few people in our business that have, that leave such a legacy as he does with the beloved nature of his audience and all the animals that he saved getting them adopted. I, uh, it's just another sign he had COVID. It's not clear whether that ultimately killed him. It certainly did not help him. Uh, how many people have been lost to this awful virus? And we'll be talking about that virus again on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. It's been a busy news week so far. we got lots to talk about, so let's start talking about it. How does one get a child in kindergarten or first grade to wear a mask for an entire school day, as now mandated by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine? I have kind of an acute view of this because I spent yesterday, I'm off this week, and I spent yesterday chasing around a four-year-old who has <laughs> incredible energy. I was exhausted by day's end. And when I saw the mask mandate, I'm thinking, there's no way, there is no way I could have kept him in a mask for an entire day. I couldn't keep him still for 15 minutes. So, Laura Johnston, this one boggles my mind. How do you do it? And is the real motive here to get all the schools to close down because this is so damn near impossible? I don't I don't think that's the motive, although it could be. Um, I think the idea is you have to get your kids used to wearing a mask. Um, my kids are seven and nine. They don't like wearing masks either. I have a four-year-old niece who will wear hers. Um, my mom has been busy making, making masks all summer. But I, I saw a Facebook post today that said, if you're going to give your kids screen time, make them wear the mask while they're watching it so that they just get used to this idea. Because, yeah, it's going to be difficult, especially for the youngest kids in kindergarten and first grade. They're going to give Ohio schools two million masks. I don't know if those are going to be fabric or disposable, but I'm hoping schools are going to have backups for the kids who forget or lose their mask. I've seen these homemade strings like the um, old lady glasses holders so that kids won't drop them on the ground, although then there's questions of whether they should be putting them back on their face. But, yeah, it's a big question. Well, Laura, you're the one who, when this first came up two months ago, talked about all the snot in kids' noses oh, and yeah. how gross no, it I, would be. I don't, so you're, I don't you're spinning here. I, well, I mean, what are you going to do? I still think that it would make a lot more sense for kid, for schools to hand out disposable masks at the beginning of the day. And if they have lunch or recess, um, switch them out. Because I do think that you're going to have a lot of disgusting, snotty masks. But I, I, like, I'm not in charge of that. Yeah, I just don't see it. Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon, do you see a kindergartner or first grader wearing a mask for an entire school day? I see adults not wearing them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, they can't even wear them properly. They're like below their nose and all that. Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't see, like, thank goodness we didn't arm teachers. Like, this is... <laughs> Like, like I, I don't. I mean, this is going to be a huge headache for teachers. I, I, I just don't see how they're going to be able to to manage this. I, I, I just, know. I, I don't see it. I mean, and I, if I were a school administrator already, I'd be thinking, okay, we can't pull that off. Let's do it remotely for the first nine weeks and see what we do. Which, you know, in Cuyahoga County, that's what the health board has recommended, and school districts are all pretty much starting to fall in line, even though a lot of parents are holding protests. I, I just my bet is those parents that are holding the protests couldn't get their kids to wear a mask for an entire day. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I, I was surprised by it. And 
it kind of came out of nowhere, right? I mean, Laura, there was a, a doctor's group that came out mm-hmm. with a recommendation, but there's been no preamble to this. I mean, DeWine had very specifically said when he announced his school opening plan that it was staff and teachers that had to wear them and a recommendation that students of what, 10 and over wear them, right? Yeah, but I mean, nothing about this virus has been constant. It's changing all the time. But yeah, there's a letter from the Ohio Children's Hospital Association and the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics that he cited and he put the 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 letter on his Twitter and everything like that. Most of the school districts that we've seen their plans required masks, at least for, I think, third grade and up. So I, I wonder if there were schools elsewhere that weren't going to require them. I don't I don't know because we've only looked at the 31 districts around here. But it, this is going to be a question as you go forward. Well, I mean, if it's a mandate, it's a mandate. But um, like you said, there are protests at schools. Uh, Brexville Broadview Heights voted to keep in-person classes regardless of that Board of Health recommendation. So there, it's a very divisive but, issue. But so I, you just can said. I say something? Go ahead. I, I think the governor, you know, he might see a disaster coming. And he has said repeatedly that he is not, he is going to leave it up to the school districts about, you know, when they're going to open, how they're going to open. And he's just trying to do something to, to avoid a total disaster here. Well, get, but, but Laura said it had been for third grade and up. That's eight years old. Kindergarten is five years old. Right. And I'm just pragmatically, practically speaking, that that's a huge gulf. And again, I spent the day with the four-year-old. There's just no way. We'll have to see how this goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the former Ohio health director, Dr. Amy Acton, doing now that she has completely left state government? Jan Cahoon, we've all missed Amy Acton since she stopped being health director a couple of months ago, if it's even a couple of months ago. Mike DeWine had announced she was staying in government at her original salary to advise him, but now she's out. So where is she and what's she doing? Well, gosh, this is a job that seems perfectly suited for for the person who was such a calming and empathetic presence during the coronavirus pandemic. She's she's going back. um, She's getting away from all the meanness of Ohio politics to go back to the Columbus Foundation, where she was before uh, DeWine hired her, and she's going to run an initiative called Kind Columbus. And that's described as being dedicated to spreading the words and actions of kindness as a defining value for the region. Uh, I guess they, they, they help fund programs for people in need, including you know, like one-time support for somebody facing a financial hardship or uh, helping people with food insecurity issues and, and things like that. I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of mush to me. So she's gone. <laughs> from keeping, but it's all about kindness. Isn't that but, perfect for her? Yeah, but, but she's gone from a job where she was keeping Ohioans safe from a horrible, deadly new virus to, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> hey, let's all be nice to each other. I don't know. I I I, I see that as a major step away from having a real influence on people's lives. And we, we talked, look, we talked that we think she might have left because she disagreed with the direction the state was going and that, that the, the reopening of the state did likely cause a big spike in cases she didn't want to be responsible for. I just, I mean, she, she really meant something 
to the safety of Ohio when she was health director. And now it's going to be. Wouldn't you want to flee if you if you were her? Though? I mean, from or, yeah, right? or, do you fight? or do you stay and fight? Do you stay and try and do right as much as you can in the face of a challenge? I mean, that's when things are tough is when when character shows up and she walked away. I, I get it that she dis- she did. She may not have liked the way it was going. What more difference might well, she have made? Is you know, things- we don't know whether she got a shove because you know she was such a lightning rod for the criticism. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Someday she will talk. I hope, and we'll find out what happened there. Wish her the best in her new life, making people more kind. It's this week in the CLE. How does the RTA police chief in Cleveland figure into a riveting new Netflix series on how the FBI? took out the heads of the five major mob families in New York in the 1980s. Chris Ranowski, I watched this series. It's great. I mean, it is riveting. The wiretaps that they play, I'd never heard them, and the storytelling is so strong. But I didn't realize I was watching the RTA police chief. What's the deal here? Yeah, you didn't know that until after you read the story? Yeah, I didn't realize it until I read Joey Morona's story yesterday. Right, so before... Becoming the RTA police chief in 2005, I, John Joyce spent 25 years as a special agent with the FBI. And in the in the early 1980s, he belonged to one of the bureau's squads that was assigned to secretly bug New York City's notorious five crime families. So these sort of never heard before tapes were at the heart of this Netflix uh, docuseries called Fear City. New York versus the mafia. And it basically tells the story of the government's plan to indict all of the families at the same time in an effort to bring their reign over the city to an end. The, and, uh, and, and Joyce, he appears in three episodes uh, where he sort of talks about his experience of, of, of bugging these crime families during this golden age of the, the mob. Well, he was involved with just the Colombo family. This is only a three-episode series, but it managed mm-hmm. packed. And he he was involved in the one kind of screw-up. Like, they went into the restaurant where this family was meeting and put a bug in the overhead light, but they did it in such a way that the wires were sticking out. And so a couple <laughs> of mobsters came in, looked up at it, and said, that wiring doesn't look right, and all of a sudden the sound goes dead. And what's amazing is they got back in and they rebugged the place and got it all... And, the, the audio of this thing, it's right out of Goodfellas. Like you, when you watch the movie Goodfellas, you know, they talk wild and they say all sorts of stuff. You don't know if it's real or not. It's exactly real. It's exactly the way these guys talk in the tapes. I mean, it is the, the stereotypical mobster stuff. God, it's just a tremendous thing. And I, I mean, I wish I'd have known that about Joyce. We would have done a story on him a long time ago. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I, I mean, I'd encourage anybody who has an interest in in old mafia stuff to to really to spend some time with it. It's a it's it's an interesting watch. And and it's when Rudy Giuliani was like this hard driving prosecutor saying things that were logical and made sense. And so <laughs> we, we talked before the podcast about recent studies that show that the baby boom generation might be losing its faculties. Watch Rudy Giuliani in this miniseries. Watch Rudy Giuliani today. <laughs> be the judge of whether our faculties are deteriorating as we age. It's this week in the CLE. What is the significant step Cuyahoga County government is taking to try to make voting go smoothly in the presidential election? 
And what is Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson trying to do on his end? Laura Johnson, there's a whole lot of fear that's being spread around, partly by the president, about the the coming election, which kind of throws me because we've been running elections for decades and centuries, and generally we pull it off. But but there's a lot of movement now to try and make sure that it's safe. So what is the county, what is the city trying to do? So there's been an issue about poll workers, right? That they need about 4,000 poll workers to run the election in November. And they think they need about 1,500 more to make that happen. So count, the county is going to allow county employees to receive paid leave while serving as poll workers. So that would mean that they'd receive their usual county pay on election day, as well as the normal compensation paid to poll workers, um, employees would have to get permission in advance from their supervisor. The county can deny requests. The board of elections could refuse workers depending on needs. Um, but that way they would have some more people to work. And meanwhile, the city thinks uh, they could offer Cleveland's recreation center and library branches uh, as sites for what he Frank Jackson described as 24-hour secure drop boxes for absentee ballots. But we're not quite sure if that's legal. Secretary of State Frank LaRose is already asking Attorney General Dave Yost about the legality of a similar Dropbox proposal received earlier. So, I mean, a lot of people are going to be voting by mail. Pete Cross has a story this morning on Cleveland.com about making that happen and making sure that people get their ballots in safely. When the primary was postponed back earlier this year, we were at the very beginning of the pandemic where nobody knew what to do to stay safe. I mean, remember back then they were telling you, don't wear a mask. <laughs> you know, so, so there was a panic there about if we get everybody together with what we don't know, this could spread the virus far and wide. And actually, I think there was some evidence of that because in places like Michigan and elsewhere, there was a much bigger spread than in Ohio. But now we do know most of the things we can do to avoid it if we wear masks. I mean, Costco and Home Depot have figured it out. What is so hard about getting people into a polling place, cast their ballot, and walk out safely without getting the coronavirus? I, I, I don't understand the predictions of doom that we are seeing. Oh, I don't know. What about schools? I mean, anything where you put a lot of people together in an inside space where they're touching things is just, you know, a little bit scary. And but, so actually but, we had an election. Wait, 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 wait. It's school. <laughs> You've got a bunch of kids together for eight hours a day in a tight, confined space. Right. On no, election I, day, you're in and out in five minutes or you're waiting in line at the at the distance apart. I, I don't think that's a fair comparison at all. This is much more like going to Home Depot. Right. And if there's too many people, you wait in line, you go in, you get your stuff, you get out. I what well, what is the hitch here? So. I mean, the hitch in part is is poll workers, and a lot of them have been older, vulnerable people. Um, but actually, we had an election in Cuyahoga County yesterday, a special election in Maple Heights, and Josh Gunter took photos showing that poll workers wore masks and face shields. Safety crews sanitized each voting booth between voters. The layout was designed to move people in a circular pattern so they weren't crisscrossing in front of each other, and everything was just very spread out. So that was the you know that was the first. Um, tangible thing we've seen of in-person voting during a pandemic. Jane Cahoon, you've been a student of elections and voting for a long time. What When you vote, were, will you trust the absentee mail-in system or do you think you'll want to go do it in person? I think I will trust the absentee mail-in system, which I used the last time. But I think, you know, I'm going to bring it to the drop box because I have some doubts about, you know, what's happening with the Postal Service 
right now. But, you know, as Laura said, it, you know, if they don't get enough poll workers to work this election, then, you know, you're talking about people, oh, just line up outside. We might have really long lines if they have to reduce the number of polling places, because I think statutorily, you have to have a certain number of poll workers in each station. And, you know, we could have these long lines. Um, so anyway, that's just another issue I'm I'm concerned about. But as far as our mail-in system, it's it's pretty good. But just judging from what happened in the primary, um, one of my relatives requested a ballot and never got it before the election. So I think as long as, you know, you do it early and um, either mail it early or take it to the Dropbox, I think you'll be okay. Uh, this is Chris Warnowski. If, if you're able-bodied and, you know, and, and can do it, it, go and vote early at the Board of Elections. Like that is, I've, every election that I've had since I've, I've moved here, I have done that and it's been easy. If you go at the right time, there's almost nobody there. And, and, you know, and you're guaranteed to know that your, your, your ballot is going in the box. So, you know, I would try that, you know, and, yeah. and the, and a the lot other of thing, old people won't do that though. Around right. But I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like if you're able-bodied and, and, you know, and you're healthy and, and, you know, you're, you know, responsible about, you know, wearing a mask and distancing and all that, you know, do that. You know, I mean, it's one less, if, if you vote early, you're one less person clogging up a line on election day. And, and, and if you have anxieties about, you know, about the mail, you know, go downtown and, and, and go into that office and vote, you know, they have people there and it's, it's, it's been a very easy process. I've, I've always been surprised at how, you know, in and out my experience has been doing that. It's amazing how much of the anxiety people have about the mail is coming from the president of the United <laughs> States who's trying to get people anxious about the election. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might the tentacles of ousted Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder get his son an elected position in Perry County? This was an interesting story. Andrew Tobias wrote yesterday, Jane Cahoon. I uh, was surprised to see all the money flooding into Larry Householder's son's account from across the state. What's the deal there? Yeah, huge race in, in Perry County, Ohio. Uh, Larry Householder's son, Derek, is running for Perry County Commissioner. And back in January, while Larry Householder was still one of the most powerful people in state government, his allies helped boost Derek's campaign. And it took in more than $42,000. And most of that was from, from donors with ties to his father's political team. So I think, as Andrew put it in his story, unless unless these allies, you know, some of whom are big players in state politics, have some kind of keen interest in matters in little Perry County, one one could assume they were trying to curry some favor with with Larry Householder at the time. You know, when we went through the Cuyahoga County corruption for years following the 2008 raids that broke the news that the, the government was under investigation. We learned so much about all the different ways county government had been corrupted. And it feels like this householder thing is doing the same. I mean, it's ridiculous that people would flood a Perry County commission race with money, but it, but it shows that the power and influence that Larry Householder wielded because of this corrupt machinery built 
it's kind of frightening. I mean, were it not for the FBI, all these things would very likely be continuing today. Right. And well, he might <laughs> win the race anyway. So Yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> well, he won't be House Speaker because they finally threw him out of there. I just I wonder how many other areas we, we're talking about the the idea of, of having transparency with dark money and doing a bunch of things to try and correct what this has shown us. But I wonder how many other ways Larry Householder was was playing bad games that we will learn about and, and try to fix. We'll see. It's this week in the CLE. The FBI conducted a raid in downtown Cleveland Tuesday and surprise, surprise, it was not a government office. What were agents looking at involving a Ukrainian business, Chris Wernowski? And why is he being described as an oligarch? Uh, because he is an oligarch. He's a Ukrainian oligarch named Igor Kolomoisky, I believe is how it's pronounced. I'm probably butchering it. And with somebody whose last name is Wernowski, I feel bad uh, for, doing <laughs> <laughs> for doing that. Uh, but he uh, he was involved in... He's been the subject of this investigation for a while, and and he was the principal of what was called the Private Group, a large Ukrainian business company, and principals of the business uh, called Optima, which owned a bunch of real estate here in downtown Cleveland. In a lawsuit that was filed last year in Delaware, he was accused of laundering hundreds of millions of dollars of Ukrainian money through real estate holdings in the United States, which is a very common thing when it in the high like like the development and real estate industry like it's just it's something that happens but it's it's much more common in like New York and Los Angeles and so you know when we got wind that that they were investigating here it was it was kind of interesting and so yesterday uh as part of this investigation they went down and they raided his office at uh, one Cleveland Center, which is on East Ninth Street and St. Clair Avenue. I used to drive by it every day when we were going, when we were working in the office. And so, you know, now he's, this investigation has sort of taken a turn. Um, now, you know, he's not in the United States, so I don't know how easily they're going to be able to, you know, bring him here and, and if that'll ever happen. But you know, this has sort of entered the public stage of the the federal government's investigation. And, and so we'll start to see uh, other dominoes fall, I, I suspect. Now, when you see a raid like of that size, that usually means it's a pretty developed investigation. It'll be interesting to see who else gets dragged into it. Well, Just, what's interesting about this, and it's it's worth noting that that BuzzFeed and the Daily Beast both did stories last year that talked about how this guy had refused to set up a meeting between our president's uh, personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and the Ukrainian president in an attempt to dig up dirt against Joe Biden. So, so you know, there's there's all this stuff always sort of seems to there always seems to be a tie to some stuff to to Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. So, you know, here here we are talking about Joe Biden, Rudy Giuliani, and a Ukrainian oligarch who owned a bunch of buildings here in our city. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. With more and more college students staying at home to learn remotely for the fall semester because of the coronavirus, what is the Big Ten doing to make that a bit more attractive? Jane Cahoon, we don't get many good news stories out of the coronavirus. This is kind of a good news story. What is the Big Ten doing for students? 
Yeah, this is something actually called the Big Ten Academic Alliance, and they announced that this online course sharing program where students at participating universities can choose from a list of classes, not all classes, at other schools within the conference, and they're going to waive tuition and fees. So, uh, and I think you can only take like one one course for semester per semester. But Ohio State is is among these schools, so its students will be able to attend an online course at another Big Ten university this fall for for no additional cost. So OSU students could take classes at Michigan, and Michigan students could take classes at OSU. <laughs> well, right now I don't think Michigan's on the list, but Michigan State is. The I, I don't well, know if they're going to expand school, it. Is, so but... <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> okay, that's that's a nice thing to do for the students because we are hearing from them how disappointed they are that they're losing the experience. One of the people that I text with on my text account is an OU student has written an op-ed for us that I think we'll publish next week about what she feels like she is losing. And it's pretty thoughtful. So this is a way of trying to help them out. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland Police Chief Calvin Williams making officers wear coronavirus masks, even though city council exempted them from the mandate? Chris Arnowski, we've mentioned before the the way it looks when a police officer shows up at a convenience store not wearing a mask, all the people that are inside, they're, they're kind of, you know, public figures that people look to, for example. Uh, and apparently Calvin Williams doesn't like that look. So what's he doing about it? Well, so when the city of council pr- approved the rules in mid July requiring people in Cleveland to wear masks, they, uh, uh, the 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 mayor signed it almost immediately, uh, but in a in a weird thing, it, it exempted public safety workers from the mask requirements. So um, to make up for that, uh, Calvin Williams, a police chief, has ordered the officers in his department to wear face coverings whenever they're dealing with the public, despite the provisions in the mandatory mask ordinance that exempts his officers. So, but he only put that out last week. So for a good five, six weeks, they weren't required to wear them. Right. Right. And you know, I, it just, it, it just makes sense to have your police. I mean, no, like nobody is dealing with, you know, outside of maybe EMPs and firefighters and doctors, you know, who else is, is coming in regular daily contact with, with multiple people throughout the city, you know? And, and so his quote in, in the order says that members are reminded of the personal protective equipment requirement when coming into contact with the public and should continue to operate under the assumption that everyone is positive for COVID-19. I mean, that just, it just sounds like a common sense thing to, to do. So he did it, he did it for, for their safety, not for the public image, but there's no doubt that having people see officers wearing masks will help with the public image. Right. Right. And I think, you know, I think, you know, seeing these, you know, regardless of what your point of view is about police, it, you know, seeing seeing police in masks, I think, is just a net positive for the community. I, you know, I don't know what all of the police chiefs of suburban police departments are doing as far as making their. But, you know, we they are one of the largest, if not the largest law enforcement agency in our region. And and I think sort of a, a leading by example is not a bad thing. 
It was interesting. There was an FBI raid in downtown Cleveland yesterday, and in the photos, you could see all of the agents were wearing masks. It's a good sign when the people that represent the public are wearing masks. So good for Calvin Williams, and mm-hmm. hopefully it'll keep some officers from getting sick. Calvin Williams has a selfish interest because if the officers get coronavirus, it's a lot harder to patrol the city. So he's trying to keep people healthy. It's this week in the CLE. All right, that does it for this uh, podcast. I can't imagine another newsy day like we've had Monday and Tuesday, but what do you think? We going to have another newsy day? <laughs> it's like the fire hose. It just doesn't stop. All right. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We will return tomorrow.